afternoon from the KLX studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Frank Ling, and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, Twin Suns and Amazonia. In addition, Professor David Nathan will join us to discuss revolutions in cancer therapy. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On Berkeley Rocks. Back in Berkeley Rocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. So there's been a study carried out with tribe in Amazon, the Tsumani people in Bolivia. And what they've discovered is that mothers who have a good knowledge of local plants and what they're used for tended to have healthier children than those mothers who had less of the knowledge. These people typically live in a traditional lifestyle and use mostly plants for their food, medicine, and uh, livelihood. But as some of these people came into contact with industrialized world, they uh, lost a lot of this ancient knowledge. And as a result, their kids tended to be less healthy. Mm. The conclusion here is that there should be some mechanism in which a lot of this traditional wisdom can be protected, not just for the children's health, but preserving a traditional culture and also sharing very important knowledge for future generations. Right. So what do they suggest is a mechanism for doing this? They're saying that there has to be some mechanism or framework in which they're able to preserve the traditional values or traditional culture at the same time that they adapt to globalization. Hmm. So uh, this is, you know, concrete evidence that traditional lifestyles should be at least studied and somehow maintained. Who knows what kind of hidden wisdom there is. So yes. Perhaps they can tell us how not to get involved in wars that uh, we really shouldn't be. Yeah, the ancient ones knew what they were talking about. Indeed. Very interesting work carried out by T.W. McData and colleagues at Northwestern University, and it was published in our very favorite journal. Is there a week that goes by that we don't read our very favorite journal? Just last week, actually. I guess so. <laughs> that would be the proceedings. Of the National Academy of Sciences. PNAS. All right, Frank, so what's your absolute favorite scene in Star Wars? Darth Vader strikes on Obi-Wan Kenobi, he just disappears into the force. <laughs> a good scene. Pretty maybe cool trick. Well, or cool demonstration of a lack of a budget, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> or filming deadline. <laughs> well, sometimes, you know, these limitations actually give better results. Well, you don't like the opening shot where Luke is walking off into the distance and sees the two suns setting? Yeah, that was pretty cool, actually. Yeah kind of reminds me of the one side that says here. <laughs> Except doubled. Yes. <laughs> for a lot of people have thought for quite some time that that's a very nice poetic scene, but couldn't uh-huh. exist in reality. Yes. But in fact, new research is suggesting that, in fact, binary star systems like that might be more common than is thought. Okay, well, Jupiter does become a sun. <laughs> Although, I guess in some instances, this would mean part of the time we would basically have daylight perpetually, right? Yeah, well, depending on what time of day. <laughs> or where the Earth is in the... In uh, relation to the... In the solar system. Yeah. I mean, it would be quite fascinating um, to live on such a planet. And in fact, if recent results published in the Astrophysical Journal are correct, they may be even more likely than single star systems. Oh, really? So what researchers now have found using the Spitzer Space Telescope, carried out by Dave Trilling of the University of Arizona, 
these binary star systems have protoplanetary disks of matter surrounding them. Okay. And in fact, they've known this for binary star systems, which are very separated far, far apart. Uh-huh. But now they find them even more common with stars that are very close together. I see. In fact, they say it's over 60% of systems with tightly orbiting stars, which is much higher than that of single star system. Okay. This is very fascinating to suggest that there could be plenty of... Mm, always two there are. ...master. And your apprentice. But which is which? This is just another indication, says astrophysicist Mario Livio, that using our own solar system as a model for all solar systems may not be such a good idea. Mm. Yeah, uh, we're too solar-centric, you know. <laughs> Again, very fascinating work. Dave Trilling and co-workers at the University of Arizona published in the Astrophysical Journal. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Professor David Nathan will join us to discuss revolutions in cancer therapy. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Grox Science Show. Well, cancer is a disease that strikes fear just by the mere mention of it. The fact that the body's own cells can become its own worst enemy has continued to challenge scientists searching for a cure. But just how close are we to a cure for cancer? Well, joins today to discuss this issue is Professor David G. Nathan. Professor Nathan was recently the head of the world-renowned Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and is now a professor of pediatrics and medicine at Harvard Medical School. He is the author of several research articles and in his new book, The Cancer Treatment Revolution, which explores modern medical approaches to cancer treatment. Professor Nathan, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, thank you. It's really a pleasure to have you on the program, and I think this is certainly a disease that many people, of course, are familiar with, but maybe some people aren't actually aware of what is cancer at its biological level, I'm wondering. Yes, I'd like to just correct one common phrase, and that is the search for a cure for cancer. Mm. There will never be a cure for cancer. And the reason for that is that cancer is many, many hundreds of different diseases. They are similar, these diseases, but they are also very, very different. So the approach to the treatment of cancer is going to be multi-headed. We're going to have a lot of different kinds of drugs. And the revolution that I wrote a book about is a new class of drugs that just come on the scene. But first, I think it is important to sort of explain what we're talking about here. Cancer is an acquired genetic disease. Our cells are driven by our 25 to 30,000 genes. And about a thousand of them, or or maybe a few more, are really responsible for growth of our cells. And it's those thousand of genes that can get mutated or changed as we just live on Earth. And when that happens, one of two things happens. Some of those genes may become very hyperactive and act like shouting telephones, if you will, or jangling telephones, telling the cell to divide, divide, divide. Another cause of cancer is sort of failure of the police and fire department in the cells. We have a whole set of genes that make proteins that run around and look 
to see if there's anything abnormal. And if they can't fix it, they tell that cell to die. Those genes can get mutated and we lose those proteins and the cells that are bad can't die. And that also causes cancer. Those are the two causes. But there are many options, many genes that can go wrong. Our job is to detect which ones and fashion the drugs to block their effects. I see. So any number of genes can lead to an overproliferation of cells being cancer. Yes, either because they're dividing too much or because they won't die, or both. Hmm. Well, it certainly makes the problem of finding targets for cancer than difficult, I imagine. Yes, but it's amazing that we're really finding them. The molecular biology revolution, the technology that allows us to examine DNA in enormous detail, the fact that the whole genome has now been pretty well defined is giving us an entirely new handle on this. And we are finding, one after another, abnormal genes that drive cancer. And we're also learning that although there are a thousand options, let's say, most cancers are really driven by four or five or six genes that are mutated. That if we can get on top of those, we will stop the cancer. And we've got examples of that. We've already done it. So it's possible to do it again. Well, the biggest challenge, of course, there's the technical challenge, and that is making the decision as to which of the genes are causing the trouble. I mean, the way I've written this book is around three patients, a child with leukemia, a woman with breast cancer, and a man with an unusual bowel tumor. And I chose these because they represent the three big classes of cancer, the blood cancers, the so-called epithelial cancers, those are the common cancers like breast prostate, lung, and colon. And then I wanted to end the book with a story of a man who had a bizarre cancer, so-called sarcoma, that was derived from a nerve cell in his bowel that was totally killed by a one new smart drug that interacted with the protein that drives his cancer. Now, the finding of this really does take years. That's true. For example, this man with this strange tumor really was the beneficiary of a hundred years of research that all came together to produce a pill called Gleevec, which is really quite well known now, that was actually designed for a different purpose, but turned out to knock out a leukemia that is driven by one of these jangling telephone proteins. It worked well in that leukemia, and some smart doctors wondered whether it would also work in this particular tumor, and it did in a remarkable way. Not quite as well as it does in the leukemia, but rather brilliantly. Hmm. Now, there are problems. One, in making the diagnosis which protein is involved, do we have a drug to match that protein? And two, cancers aren't stupid. They know how to become resistant to single drugs. Hmm. And our next big challenge is going to be to find more drugs that can target an abnormal protein and hit it from several directions. I see. And what is the strategy then for designing these drugs? Well, it, it was really quite rational. Mm. If, I'll just briefly go over the history of it. What happened was that in this particular leukemia, it was known for a long time that that leukemia is driven by a particular jangling telephone protein. That's mm. been known since the 1960s. Uh, then there was other information that made the drug company Novartis very interested in trying to develop drugs that would block such proteins. And they made an arrangement with a couple of scientists, actually, at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, to give them one 
cells that overexpress such a protein, and two, an antibody that would allow them to use those cells in a rapid screen. And what the drug company did was to take their million molecules that they have in their very secret possession Mm -hmm. and screen with them, looking for drugs that would block that signaling protein. And they found three and picked the best one and made this drug Gleevec. So they knew a lot before they started. Mm. They had a lot of information. I have to say that the fact that that drug also blocked a jangling telephone protein in this tumor was somewhat serendipitous. I mean, that is never screened against that particular protein. That was a lucky break that came out of a conversation between two people who knew a lot. It made a huge difference. It confirms a lot of what you knew about the biology of that. uh, Absolutely. And that was another point that we learned a lot about this tumor, which is a very unusual tumor, from work that went on for 100 years. The cell of origin of this tumor in the bowel it's a nerve cell in the bowel, was discovered over 100 years ago by a great Spanish anatomist. And really, only work done maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago in mice and in chickens and in other animals slowly began to make us aware that this tumor was driven by a shouting protein or a jangling telephone protein. And then we figured out what it is. Then the rest is sort of history. This was a tumor, by the way, that was totally untreatable with anything. So your book talks a lot about the smart drugs, and as many people know, a lot of the problem with cancer therapies is they're sort of indiscriminate throughout the body. How much of this is going now to directing drugs specifically to their targets? You see, up until the advent of these smart drugs, we've been using what's called combination chemotherapy to treat cancer, largely. Combination chemotherapy means a bunch of drugs that really injure DNA. The cancer cell comes about, and I don't think I mentioned this clearly before, because of mutations that actually weaken the repair mechanism in the cells. When we get mutations, we can usually fix them by repairing them. But when the repair genes get knocked out, you got a real problem. Now the cell can mutate and mutate and mutate because it can't be repaired. Now, that's a really serious situation. It leaves the cancer cell really very weakened, and the addition of combination chemotherapy kills it. It also, of course, kills a lot of normal cells. It's very toxic for that reason. But it's been used to our advantage, and a lot of cancers have done extremely well with combination chemotherapy, particularly childhood leukemia, which is the first story in the book. And I use that because that's really the history of treatment. But we'd like to get away from that nonspecific. I call that carpet bombing therapy because you get injured from it badly. The smart drugs are really very targeted onto the cancer and do a much better job on them. They're much more efficient. But there's the problem of resistance. And the last story, the story of the man with this odd bowel tumor, fortunately this man, although he got completely cleared up, there were a few cells left and they did become resistant. And that's our next big challenge to overcome resistance. And what do you think will be required to overcome this hurdle? Making combinations of smart drugs. Mm. Statistically, it's extremely hard for a cell to be resistant to, say, two or three or four drugs. And, And that's the biggest challenge we have right now, is making enough drugs to realize the revolution. As you mentioned, your book is sort of structured around these clinical stories, and your history is one of both a clinician and a researcher. I'm curious, what perspective do you have seeing both sides of this issue? 
that's been the joy of my life is to be able to have a life in which a career in which I can take care of patients on the one hand and also think very hard about how to make it make it better for them and that's a great life it can be somewhat frustrating and it's a it's a divided life and one worries in this modern era of very very high technology on both sides on research and on patient care whether one can really master both disciplines sufficiently to do the job but if you can and it, it's a great life and I I've gotten great joy out of it I must say most of my work has been on children with inherited blood diseases and actually less on cancer I've had this grandstand seat watching the cancer revolution I started in cancer in 1956 and I've been associated with the field ever since and I've had this 50-year chance to see the change. When I started out taking care of children with leukemia in the mid-50s, I didn't have a single survivor, not one child. And today, we're curing 85% of those children. Breast cancer that had gone underneath the arm, you know, it had spread, so-called stage three breast cancer, which is what Elizabeth Edwards had, although maybe 20% of those patients made it, they made it with a terrible operation, very disfiguring operation uh, that I hated, and 80% of them didn't make it anyway. And now 80% survive with much less surgery and with combination chemotherapy and with blocking estrogen. So it's been, a, for me, a, a wonderful career. I've seen great positive change. I'm curious then, what do you predict then for the future of cancer therapies? Do you think we'll get to 100%? No. Hmm. But I'll tell you what we will do. I think we will convert it, these serious cancers, mm-hmm. these invasive cancers. So some of them we're going to cure, uh, no question about it, because we're already doing that. Mm-hmm. But many of them we will simply suppress. We will keep our patients working, having a decent life. They'll still have cancer cells in them, but they'll be suppressed. And it'll be much less toxic therapy. I think it's going to be like what happened in, to a certain extent in HIV where 20 years ago, that was a fatal diagnosis. Tell a patient they got AIDS, they're dead in 10 years. Today, we're keeping that virus in check. I have patients with AIDS for decades, and they're doing great. I mean, they wish they didn't have to take these damn drugs because they're not pleasant, but they're living their lives. And that's, I think, also a very reasonable goal. Well, I'm curious, we are running slightly out of time, but I'm wondering if you have any last words for those people who either have cancer or who have loved ones who have cancer, what are the prospects then for them to look forward to? Well, my advice to cancer patients is, first of all, when that diagnosis first hits, to really try to get an opinion about treatment from a really good, comprehensive cancer center. I think that the cutting edge that one can achieve when one really focuses on that disease in cancer centers is really terrific. There are about, I guess, 55 National Cancer Institute comprehensive cancer centers around the country. And I realize that we're a big country and lots and lots of people and not everybody can get there, but my advice to patients is try to get there, at least for an opinion, to see what's new and what's the best approach and then take a very positive view. I ask my patients to kind of look down the field and act like Midwest tackles. 
you know, those guys don't even, they can't even turn their heads, they're so big. So they just plod forward <laughs> till they get to the goal line. And that's what the cancer patients got to do. And I, it's really tough when I tell that to a very pretty little woman, but that's what they got to act like, determined Midwest tackles. Well, I think it's certainly good advice and probably a good place to end our talk. Professor Nathan, I want to thank you very much for talking to us today about all the fascinating developments that are going on in uh, cancer therapies. Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity. And you were just listening to Professor David Nathan discussing revolutions in cancer therapy. This is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. back and we're ready to play our game the Grokatron 5000. That's right it's our supercomputer that was formerly known as Deep Blue and today the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if the following people are cancerous or not. <laughs> so for the following five people the Grokatron 5000 would like to know cancer or not a cancer on society. Uh, <laughs> Professor Nathan you ready to play our game? I'll play it. Okay thank you very much. <laughs> uh, person number one is the heiress Paris Hilton. Oh dear. <laughs> No, I don't. I wouldn't say that because I think she's just very unfortunate. <laughs> she had a poor upbringing. So no, I would have to uh, pass on that one. No, I feel hard. sorry for her. But <laughs> uh, okay, number two is Microsoft CEO Bill Gates. Oh no, he he's fascinating, <laughs> and has done brilliantly, and he's very generous. I think that's a guy I have great respect for. I sometimes can't fight my way through one of his computers, <laughs> but I do respect the contribution he made. Indeed. All right, number three is uh, self-help guru Tony Robbins. I have to pass on that one because it's terrible. I usually don't like self-help gurus, <laughs> but, but I, I don't know that one. Okay. I have to pass. Sorry. Right. Uh, number four, talk show host Jerry Springer. And I, I don't know Jerry Springer. I've heard of Jerry Springer, oh. but I've absolutely never heard him. Can't comment on him either. All right, well, uh, and finally, number five, of course, the President of the United States, George Bush. I'm sorry you asked me that because <laughs> I'm going to take more air time than you want to give me. I am not a fan of Mr. Bush. <laughs> and uh, I think he's the worst president in modern history mm. and maybe going back all the way to the pre-Civil War. I've never seen a man as incompetent and pompous and arrogant. Mm. And I wish he'd go away. Mm. I have no way of getting rid of George Bush <laughs> except through the election. It can't come soon enough. Yeah, well, I, I think a lot of people would agree. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, Professor Nathan, again, I want to thank you for sticking around playing our game. Well, I'm and sorry I didn't know some of it. It shows you how old I am. <laughs> I didn't know some of the characters. Uh, I think you're, you're wise in the things that matter anyway. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. All right, thank All right. you again for uh, talking to us about uh, all the things in cancer therapy. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye. And now the answer to the last week's question of the week. What is a cellular automata? A cellular automata consists of an infinite rigid grid of cells. Each cell will respond to its state in the state of its neighbors 
and as a function of time will obey rules each cell will obey the same rules and change into the next generation and this is a cellular automata oh my brother it's the bulkster coming around to ram you with my amram well do you know what it is if you do emails at grox at hotmail.com you ain't gonna win anything but you just might feel the ram and that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Music.